This is Leader ReadyCast, a monthly podcast featuring real-world lessons, best practices, and action-oriented insights for the you're-it moments when you're called upon to lead. Leader ReadyCast is the official podcast of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, a joint program of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard John F. Kennedy School of Government. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Welcome to the latest episode of Leader ReadyCast. I'm your host, Eric McNulty, and my guest today is Dr. Nick Morgan, CEO and founder of Public Words. Our topic is communications, specifically connecting in a virtual world. Communicating well is a core competency for anyone leading others. You may be called upon to set direction, provide feedback, clarify a situation, or any of a hundred other challenges. Your ability to understand the communication's need and fulfill it effectively may spell the difference between your success and failure. And Nick Morgan is a highly respected expert in this area. He coaches senior executives on public speaking and has written several books on the topic. They include Working the Room, How to Move People to Action Through Audience-Centered Speaking, Trust Me, Power Cues, The Subtle Science of Leading Groups to Persuading Others and Maximizing Your Personal Impact, and most recently, Can You Hear Me? How to Connect with People in a Virtual World. Nick, welcome to Leader ReadyCast. Eric, thank you. It's a great pleasure to be with you. We really appreciate your time today and your insights. Now, it's often said that public speaking is one of life's most terrifying experiences. It's a really urit moment for our listeners. Can you give them one or two basic tips of how to over- overcome some of that fear? You know, it's a, it's a question I get asked uh, all the time. And what that really suggests is it's universal. And so there's no escaping it. That's the first thing to understand. It's not you. There's nothing wrong with you personally. Um, everybody experiences this. I was uh, at a uh, speech last night, the editor-in-chief of The Economist, a, a wonderful series of public lectures uh, here in Boston. And this woman who is very erudite and in charge of one of the more sophisticated uh, weekly publications the world has to offer was nervous. She was nervous the entire time, evinced those subtle signals of nervousness in terms of her voice and in terms of her body language uh, that somebody like me is trained to look for. So nobody escapes. Um, the, the ways in which you can control that fear are, first of all, the bad news. Your audience won't like to hear this. Doing the, your homework, um, <laughs> rehearsing, knowing your speech well enough. Don't wing it uh, so that uh, you're working from muscle memory as opposed to making it up as you go along. So that's the first and, and best way to control the nervousness. But there are some other ways. Uh, deep, uh, what we call belly breathing is good. So proper breathing. When you get panicked, when you get nervous, you tend to breathe shallowly. You tend to pant. Um, and that adds actually to your panic. It increases your heart rate. And so it makes you feel worse. So if instead you take big, deep, slow breaths before you go on stage, that can help. And then visualizing success is something that um, most of your listeners are probably familiar with these days. Uh, is something that Olympic athletes first started to do years ago, where they would imagine that three minutes of skiing downhill at 70 miles an hour or being on the balance beam or, or going through a, a gymnastic floor routine or any one of these other incredibly difficult things that they do, they would imagine it going well. They would imagine it in great detail, like a little movie in their heads. You can do the same thing as a speaker. Imagine that speech going well. And then when you get up to deliver it, 
then you have the uh, the familiarity of that video replaying an effect in your head, and it's very helpful. Uh, so uh, practice, deep breathing, uh, and uh, visualization all can help. Okay, with that, I'll take a deep breath. We and both will. Absolutely. It is remarkable how that will, how calm, calms you down. So many of our listeners regularly encounter high-stakes, high-stress situations where clear, accurate, and at times compelling communication is critical. For better or worse, much of that occurs these days via audio conference or social media. What have you found are the barriers to making technology-mediated interfaces as effective as face-to-face -face communication? And perhaps as important, what can we do about them? The thing to understand is, uh, first of all, that uh, virtual communications, which is, uh, as you point out, which is just the way we all do business these days, is simply not as effective as face-to-face -face communications. That's the first thing we have to get out there. Uh, and it's not as effective in two ways. In the, in the moment, we get much less information of the kind that we humans need in order to understand fully the intent of the other person or other people talking to us. And so uh, we, we humans care about intent. We pick that up from body language. If, uh, if your boss comes to you and says, uh, we've got to talk, for most people, that's a moment to panic. But if your boss says it with a smile on his or her face and a pat on the arm, then you're going to react a little less hysterically than you would if you just heard the words. And so context matters, intent matters enormously, and it just doesn't come as through as well um, in the virtual world. So that's the first thing uh, to understand. And then the second thing to understand about the virtual world is that any relationship you have in the virtual world suffers from a negativity bias, and so it's going to degrade over time. And that's a little more complicated, so I have to explain it. So then the negativity bias suggests that when you don't understand what the other person's intent is clearly, so when you're not getting a good fix on whether this spokesperson who's giving information out um, publicly is, um, is a nice person or is, uh, is really worried or only slightly worried, uh, how worried should we be when you're not getting good information about that we tend to assume the worst that's the way we humans are hardwired and when we don't get information on in an ongoing way about intent over time we assume the worst in many little ways on many separate occasions and so over time our relationship with that person um, degrades and so uh, those are the two real big challenges facing uh, the virtual world, virtual communications, is that in the moment we don't understand intent and over long term the relationship is going to degrade. And so we have to do things that, um, that repair those two problems. We have to get clearer about our intent in the moment. This is how I'm feeling. Uh, this is what I mean to you. Um, and then in the long run we have to do things that repair the relationship as it were. Uh, and uh, we can talk more about those. Uh, perhaps if if, uh, if you're interested. Yeah, I definitely would like to. And I know in the, in the, in the book you lay out uh, five things that virtual communications lacks that uh, we find in face-to-face -face communications. And I know one of the statistics in the book, which I'm, I will tell you I'm going to steal, but I will, I'll do it with a proper footnote, uh, <laughs> is understanding that our, our unconscious minds process about 11 million bits of information per second or are capable of that while the conscious mind can practice about 40. 
Uh, and I think we, we tend to think of ourselves as very aware, very conscious, very in, uh, rational and in charge of, our, of what we're seeing, hearing, and the decisions we're making. But so much of that is, is, is occurring in our subconscious and, incur and you, when you lose that information, it becomes much, much harder to, to process things in the right way and make the right kind of decisions. Is that right? That's absolutely right. We think we can do it consciously, but we're actually not very good at it. And, and we normally rely hugely on our uh, unconscious minds to do that processing. And that's the 11 million bits uh, of uh, information you're talking about. So when we're watching a speaker uh, and we're in the same room with that speaker, then uh, we judge uh, the speaker's intent, what the speaker means by whether he or she has a smile on her face when He's, he or she says something that's sarcastic or, or meant to be funny. Um, in a virtual communication, we don't get that. Uh, one, of the, one of the favorite uh, examples I ran across or bits of research I ran across as I was uh, uh, doing the, the research for the book um, was the, the folks who, uh, who, are, man who are managers uh, on, your, on your part, listen to your podcast, will, will appreciate this. Um, many of them will have sent an email which was just two words long uh, to one of their direct reports, something along the lines of nice job or great job or good job. And when I speak to audiences about, uh, about the book and I ask them how many of you have done that, anybody who manages somebody, 100% of the hands go up. So everybody sent that email from one time or one time or another. Good job. Nice job. Great job. And then I'll ask them, so when you sent that email, would it surprise you to learn that 60% of the time, the recipient treated that email as sarcastic? And when I say that, I'll get an audible gasp in the room. People are genuinely shocked to hear that. I'll say, how could they misunderstand that? It's two words. Nice job. Good job. Great job. And I'll say, we have this negativity bias. We tend to assume the worst. And so we will read an email of two words because it lacks emotional information. We will read that as sarcastic in the default mode. That's fascinating. Absolutely and, fascinating. And so to, to repair that, you have to go out of your way. You can no longer send, knowing this, you can no longer send two-word emails. You can't send emails that lack emotional context because in person, it would be the nod, it would be the smile, it would be the eye contact that would let you know that you meant that. Sincerely, you were not being sarcastic. doesn't come across in the virtual world. When you think about how much virtual communication we do and how, how much interaction there is with people with whom we have no existing relationship you know, with the direct reports they should be able to visualize who you are when they get the email the uh, the opportunity for uh, misunderstanding and things to be misconstrued is is enormous uh, dick if you would walk, walk us through the five things that the virtual communications lacks and uh, it'll help us better understand what this void is we're talking about yeah absolutely so the the first problem is uh, and the most important all the others stem from it is the lack of feedback. And that's what we're talking about when we say we don't understand other people's intent um, the way we do when we're face to face. So we don't get the emotional feedback that, doesn't, that would normally go with the expression, with the words uh, when we're seeing somebody face to face. And, and so uh, you might think as a result of that lack of emotional feedback in the messages that are exchanged, that we would then become more sensitive or more curious about how the other person is feeling or what the other person means. 
But the opposite happens. We the second big problem then results that results is that we lose empathy. So we're less empathetic in that situation. Again, it's sort of surprising. You'd think we'd ask more or be curious about it, but instead we just assume the worst. Uh, and so uh, this is why we get we get trolling in the online world uh, because. Uh, lacking emotional feedback, people don't see that they're hurting other people, and so they feel comfortable to to be ruder, to be meaner, um, to uh, to assume the worst, and and ultimately to be uh, to be trolling other people. And I talked to some trollers <laughs> when I was uh, doing the research for the book, and met them. There were a couple I managed to talk to meeting me in person, and it was hilarious. As soon as you meet them in person, they're like really embarrassed. Back down immediately, they say, "Well, I wouldn't ever say that to somebody." It's just on, online, it doesn't seem to matter, right? And 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 so strangely, we humans lose empathy when you take away that feedback loop. Uh, and and the third problem then is the result of of all of that trolling going on in the world. You lose track, uh, you lose control of your own um, persona online, and so things are said about you. You put out. Um, pictures and information on Facebook and, and, and you get trash talk back. Um, all of that lasts forever on the, uh, in the internet, in the, in the machine world. Um, and you, you, you have no control over that. And so that becomes an issue whenever it goes negative for people. They usually don't mind when they get positive reinforcement, but because of the negativity bias and the lack of empathy, we often get negative information. So the, the, the online world becomes a place where machines are very happy to live because they never forget anything, but humans are actually quite uncomfortable. The fourth problem that evolves out of the lack of feedback is, and again, this is perhaps somewhat surprising to your listeners, is that we make bad decisions. And the reason for that is, uh, while we don't like to think of ourselves this way, we think of ourselves as uh, as Mr. Spock's, but we're actually more like Captain Kirk's, uh, for your listeners who are familiar with Star Trek, in that uh, we make our decisions based on emotions and rather than logic. Um, and the, the easy way to understand this is to imagine yourself at two years old, you wander into the kitchen, um, there's a, this lovely orange glowing object about uh, just about out of the reach of your finger and you say, gee, I wonder what that is. You put your, uh, your finger on that glowing orange object and suddenly you're filled with rage and terror and pain and agony because you've put your finger on a hot stove. You remember that forever and you never ever do that again. And that's the way memory works and that's the way we make decisions. We attach emotions stronger or weaker to the things that have happened to us. When something new happens, we have to make a decision about it. We say, well, that reminds me of situation X. And because of the amount of emotion I've attached to it, I'll either do that or not do that if it's positive or negative emotion. So in the virtual world, when you take out that emotion, you reduce empathy, but you also reduce your ability to make good decisions about things because you don't have that clear emotional hierarchy that you have in the face-to-face world. And, th- and that leads to the final problem, which is um, making bad decisions and lacking emotional connections. We humans uh, lack uh, commitment uh, to each other. Um, and the very simple way to understand this is uh, is in terms of online shopping. Everybody's had the experience of going on a, a website to shop for something online, not Amazon, and the experience hangs up in some way. Either the, it's slow to take your credit card and you get nervous, so you decide not to buy, or maybe it doesn't work. It doesn't have the size you want or the color that you want. It doesn't go as well. So what do you do? You go to Amazon and buy it there. 
everybody's had this experience. When I talk to audiences, everybody raises their hand. It's 100%. And so the, the reason for that is, is that Amazon has spent hundreds of millions of dollars making sure that their online experience, your online experience with them is 100% the same trustworthy all the time. And so the commitment to the extent we have it is, is strong there. But in the rest of the online world, people don't have as much uh, dedication to it and as much money as Amazon. It's not as strong. And that generally becomes the way our online experiences go. They're less, we're less committed to them. There's less trust involved. Um, and so they're, they are weaker, uh, weaker ties. And so you think about it, where we used to, a generation ago, had a world that was mostly face-to-face. -face. Now it's at least half virtual, half face-to-face. And what that suggests is that our ties to our fellow human beings are now half uh, as strong as they were, but half weaker as well. And so that's creating a situation where we feel more entitled to be negative, our relationships are weaker, our, our trust levels are lower, our, uh, our commitment to our fellow human beings are weaker. All of that's happening in the virtual space, but that's become 50% of the way we live. Um, and so I, I worry, in essence, for, for our human connections, because in the online world, they simply don't work as well. So I know you spent a lot of time understanding this problem. What have you come up with in terms of solutions? What can people do to make uh, their emails, their conference calls, their other virtual interactions resonate more and, and have more of the richness of face-to-face -face communication? Yeah, so the good news is there's lots you can do to make it better. Um, it's not... It's not a lost cause. And I would say it all really stems from the first question I suggest people ask themselves, which is how did what I just say in the virtual world, so saying maybe in an email or, or on an audio conference or even in a video conference, how did what I just say make the other person feel? And if you know the answer to that, great. If you don't know the answer to that, it'd be a good idea to ask. It's about, therefore, surfacing and getting conscious of other people's intent and their reaction to our intent and making clear what our intent is toward them. That's the thing that goes largely taken care of by our unconscious minds in the face-to-face -face world. In the virtual world, we can't assume that people know our intent, and so we have to become conscious of it, conscious of the way we share it with other people and that we ask other people. Uh, and so that's the first thing is is to uh, is as whenever you get a chance uh, in in these various such online situations the various virtual situations make your intent clear and ask other people what their response is or what their intent is back to you um, and so uh, in email i suggest putting that in the the headline what's in it for the receiver and making it clear I, throughout the uh, the email i suggest uh, people should use emojis and the studies show that if you're over a certain age, you still find emojis kind of silly or childish. Um, and so I suggest to people just get over that. <laughs> uh, because remember back to that two-word email that got misunderstood by 60% of your recipients. Nice job, good job, great job. If you put an emoji, a smiley face, along with those two words, there's no doubt that you mean it in a positive way. Um, and so that just removes the ambiguity. So emojis are crude. Um, but they are a simple way, a crude and simple way to put the intent back in and make it clear so that it's not misconstrued. 
on audio conferences, I suggest creating a role for somebody uh, we call an MC, um, whose job it is to keep track of of how the other the people on the audio conference uh, are reacting. Uh, what their questions are. Uh, you can do this through a virtual side channel, um, or you can stop the, the flow of the audio conference and ask. But one of the things to note is that the research shows that over time, if you have an ongoing audio conference, one that convenes every week uh, for a long period of time or every month, then uh, if you monitor people's uh, participation in that over time, um, if the participation of all participants is roughly equal, then that audio conference, whatever you're trying to achieve on that audio conference, is likely to go better. If, on the other hand, the uh, participation is, is asymmetrical, in other words, some people participate a lot, other people just listen silently, then you know, that audio conference and the teamwork that you're trying to achieve is likely to go badly. And so it's very important to make sure that everybody participates in, a, in an ongoing uh, audio conference, one that's done regularly, whether it's within a company or one um, that you broadcast out to other people. Uh, and you've got to allow for uh, feedback and participation, in, and it has to be roughly equal. So those are a few. I've got lots more, but those are a few to get started. Yes, and, and I think it's so interesting because in, in the world of, of my listeners here of in public safety and homeland security in those areas, they often take this sort of just the facts ma'am approach uh, to briefing, to conference calls, whether it be with the public or with their peers, and they sort of try and pull all the emotion out of it. And I think what you're saying is that's just making things worse. Much uh, worse. Yes, because as soon as you do that, as soon as you, you deliberately leave out the emotions, then the audience is going to supply them because that's the fundamental question we ask of other human beings is what's your intent? Meaning what's the emotional attitude you have toward this? How sincere are you? How worried are you? How tense are you? How excited are you uh, about this thing? So as soon as you deliberately decide not to provide that, the audience is going to provide it for you. And remember in the virtual world, they're going to assume the worst. That's the catch. And so you're setting up a situation where people are going to construe what you're telling them in the worst possible light. That is, um, that's so fascinating. That just people are setting themselves up for failure. Yep, exactly. And that's the, really the, if your listeners take nothing else away, that's, that's the, really the essence, the important thing to take away is that in the virtual world, the assumption is, is negative. Um, and so unless you make clear what the, uh, intent is and you have to do that work then the audience is going to assume that it's uh, that it's negative so with just a few minutes left i'm going to switch gears here a bit because one of the things i've learned from you over the years is the importance of nonverbal communication and i know you, know, you don't get a lot of that in the virtual world but when you are one of the things i enjoy in reading your your newsletter is when you diagnose political debates because you watch them with the sound down. So it's not about policies and it's not about the politics of it, but it's about how people are coming across as, uh, as individuals on a screen. Talk if you could a bit about how you do that and then a tip or two that our listeners could use if they're diagnosing themselves or their spokespeople uh, when they've been giving a public briefing. Yeah, so the, the, when you turn the sound down, then all you can look at is the body language. And the, the, 
there are a couple of very simple things that people do unconsciously either to help or hinder uh, their presence um, in that situation. And if we're thinking of the recent political debates, that's a great example. Um, you feel when you're standing up in front of other people debating or, or briefing or doing whatever it is, uh, you feel self-conscious. And in that situation, the natural thing to do is to protect yourself. And so what people do is they bring their hands in front of their torso, typically, because uh, you've got adrenaline coursing through your system, otherwise known as the fight or flight response, um, fight, uh, flight or freeze response, to be technically accurate. And the, the, flight, the fight response is, if you're going to be able to fight, you have to have your fists literally in front of your torso. That's that's how you begin to fight. So people bring their their hands in front of their torso. That means without intending to, because they're just nervous, they look like they're spoiling for a fight. They look defensive. Um, and unfortunately, the audience doesn't watch those people and say, oh, let me give you the benefit of the doubt. You're probably a little nervous, so what you're doing with your hands, I get that. Um, no, that's not the way it works. We just, all we care about is intent, and so we immediately assume the other person is defensive, doesn't know what they're talking about, doesn't believe what they're saying. Uh, we assume, again, negative things. So the first thing to do is to open up that body language. Uh, uh, make sure your hands are not blocking in front of your torso uh, because you, you are unconsciously thinking of fighting. Um, another very common one, uh, which I, I'm seeing recently in the political debates, is the tendency to use the admonishing forefinger. So imagine a single finger uh, pointing with your the hand that's gesticulating, that's making your point. And we do that to be emphatic, but uh, people hate that. <laughs> this is you were you were gestured that way uh, when you were a little child by your by a parent or by a teacher that you particularly disliked, and this is the admonishing forefinger is the one saying naughty 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 you shouldn't do that, and so we uh, we read read that as punitive rather than emphatic, and I I think my best possible explanation for why politicians insist on doing this is that they're trying to be emphatic. They're, they're trying to show they're passionate about this. But the result to us is that we feel we feel like we're being scolded. And that's not a good feeling. We're not going to uh, we're not going to receive that well. So that's a that's a classic one to uh, to avoid. Um, and then uh, a third one uh, is uh, and one which I always uh, watch with great interest is how you position your body, your posture, your basic posture. Posture sends a very strong signal to people even before you open your mouth as to what your intent is. Um, and most of us nowadays carry around cell phones, um, which means our heads are pitched forward and down unconsciously most of the time because we're looking at those cell phones. And then when we put down the cell phone, our heads, we're so used to that posture now that we, we, uh, we keep it unconsciously. Well, if, if you pitch your head forward, you're standing in front of an audience, you pitch your head forward, and, and that tends to pull your shoulders down a little bit. You look defensive, you look uncomfortable, uh, you look like you're sorry to be there, um, you look like uh, you're not confident, all kinds of things, none of them good. And so uh, I urge people to uh, be conscious, uh, uh, drop the cell phone uh, and, and straighten up and, and get that head up because... Uh, as soon as your head starts pitching down, uh, but you start sending out negative messages to your audience. All good tips that I would suggest to our audience that you 
you know, there's plenty of, of briefings and recordings of debates on YouTube to, to go watch some with the sound down and see what you pick up as those nonverbal cues as you watch someone speaking. Are they believable? Are they, uh, do, they do they seem like they're scolding or, or versus emphatic? Uh, see what you begin to pick up and then you can become conscious of it yourself when you are in front of an audience. And of course, if you want to get Nick's analysis as well as his regular tips on how to communicate more effectively, I recommend you visit his website, www.publicwords.com. Sign up for the newsletter. I know I find it consistently valuable. And pick up a copy of Nick's latest book, Can You Hear Me? How to Connect with People in a Virtual World, where he not only diagnoses the problem, he provides an abundance of practical techniques for improving your email, your conference calls, and much, much more. Nick, I want to thank you for joining us today, and thanks to everyone for listening. Eric, it's a great pleasure. Thanks for having me on your on your podcast. A pleasure, and until our next episode of Leader ReadyCast, prepare for the moment when you're it, and be ready to lead. This has been another episode of Leader ReadyCast from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And find out more about us at npli.sph.harvard.edu. Follow us on Twitter at HarvardNPLI. Thanks for listening and be ready to leave.